You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Most married couples, sooner or later after their marriage, really consider and pursue the desire to have children. They're looking forward to that prospect. Perhaps even before they were married, even before they even knew each other as singles, they imagined a future where they could think of themselves as a mother or father and enjoyed that reality, either as a continuation of what they benefited from themselves as a child, or maybe as a contradiction to what they did not receive that they want to now demonstrate themselves a a home of love and kindness and compassion and care as they raise children and provide for them and delight in them. And children are indeed that in many respects, to see the ease at which a new parent smiles at their newborn, holding them in their arms, that little boy or little girl, and just delighting in the reality of that child, either by birth or by adoption and the sweetness of that moment. Yet the reality is, many of those of you who are parents in this room know, parenting is hard. You're kind of smacked in the back of the head pretty quickly on when you realize when the newborn arrives, oh, well, there went sleep. And it seems like it doesn't revisit you for quite a while. And then as you continue to raise a child in your home, you encounter other obstacles and other things. You look forward to the cuteness of the ability of the, ability of the child to go from sitting to crawling to walking only to realize, wow, that means now they're going to get into everything. And I'm not sure I want them to do that, and I'm not sure I want to take them anywhere to do that. I'm not sure I can afford that. And the challenges continue from that point on in parenting. How to help them understand themselves. Teaching young children how to navigate friendships. Learning the discipline of self-control. Being able to learn from the consequences of their decisions. Understanding the God who made them and how this world that they live in is more than just what they see with their eyes, as God's word reveals and wants to communicate clearly to them. The parenting responsibility of being able to understand the gospel. Even teaching a child to answer the question, what were you thinking? The child initially says, I really wasn't. I just was doing. And moving them from the instinctive impulses of primordial reaction to actually thoughtful reflection, a point of intentional, what was I really after? What was I really going for here? To teaching them how to navigate perhaps their first boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, understanding how to operate an automobile to the fear of everyone around them. Parenting is no joke. It's filled with happy moments, to be sure, but a lot of sobering moments and at times sad moments. Because of the difficulties, the challenges, the dark days. This is often why Christian parents talk about how much they have to grow in their own faith in the Lord as they trust the Lord doing a work in their life as they parent children. And it doesn't end when they leave the house. It continues. In fact, in some ways, with even more faith. Well, this is often what it's like in pastoring. A pastor typically begins his ministry with lots of idealism. It all seems so exciting, 
so exhilarating, so privileged in its opportunity to be able to teach the word of God, to care for God's people, to seek to advance God's purposes in the world. What a, what a joy to labor and to see people give their lives to Christ and grow in Christ. But it doesn't take very long in the life of a young pastor, a new pastor, when reality smacks them in the back of the head as well. It turns out to be harder than the pastor ever realized. Where does the time go? How do you spend your time? Do you spend it reading and studying and writing more so you can accurately, clearly, and helpfully teach God's word to people publicly like this morning before you or privately in conversation or in email or in text or encouraging another in their conversation to yet another? Do you spend it training up others so they can be leaders in various ways in the church? Do you meet with all the people to, who ask you to meet with them in whatever way they want to meet with you? At times, often, that you're not available, but they're only available in order that you might help them, but then as a result of that, you're not even with your own family. What about all the other times, the times where the sheep are wandering? They're not seen with the flock. They've wandered into the other pastures of this world and they eat from the fields that will poison them. Do you spend your time organizing and developing and refining various ministries that people think that the church should have and would minister to them, but they don't intend to volunteer and they just intend you to provide for them as a service? There never seems to be enough time. But it's not just the time. It's sometimes it's the people. People are a source of joy. You delight in them. You see them grow. You see them come to faith in Christ. But the reality is everybody here this morning, sitting here under the sound of my voice, has a different story, a different background, a different parental experience, a different decision-making process, a different things that you've done or not done. And a number of you come with guilt and shame and fear and guilt and overwhelming consequences. And you're living sometimes in the aftermath of that. Some of you come from good homes. Some of you come from tragic homes. And the reality is everybody needs to be ministered to appropriately like in a parenting process. It's not a template. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's a careful, delineated reality of how to shepherd. It doesn't mean everybody responds well, though. People rebel. Others will slander. Others will judge without even talking to you. They'll challenge you. They'll abandon you. And no matter how much you model for them, teach them, and pray for them, many times they will still wander and slide into unbelief. Is it any wonder why the research from Barna Research says that 42% of pastors thought about quitting their job last year? Almost one out of every two pastors. Doesn't mean they all do. But some, when they do leave, they leave the pastorate for other ministry, some other job that's still in ministry but doesn't make them responsible for people. They love the ministry, they just don't like the people, which is a weird dichotomy. Others leave because of conflict in the church. Others leave because of family issues, or moral ethical issues, or pastoral personal burnout. Others because of personal finances that can't support them financially. Or others actually just due to personal sickness. Well, this morning, we learn from the life of a pastor of what it's like to pastor such a people. In Galatians chapter four is our text I wanna ask you to return back to. As we see by implication, the biography of what it's like to have a pastor and a people interact with each other, both historically and presently. If you're just joining us for the first time, not having been with us in the previous weeks, 
We're back in Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. Now, I say back in it because as the people who have been here the last couple weeks know, we've been in this text for a little bit. It's not like a broken record that has a scratch on it. We just keep looping back around. Instead, we're trying to think about it carefully and meaningfully. There's a lot for us to mine out of this text, and we want to understand it. Paul is really these people's first pastor. He's writing to these Christians, these churches in southern Galatia. You can see this in Galatians chapter 1. But he's writing to them because since he has left them, when he first planted their churches, they started to wander from the teaching he gave them. Started to now decry themselves and distance themselves from him and find new teachers that they identify with. Seemingly teachers offer them enlightenment, better understanding, offer more assurance, if you will, of their salvation. Well, let's think about what we've learned already by way of review. We see in verses 8 through 11, when good disciples go bad. We even had the text earlier on the screen in Galatians chapter 4, verse Nine, and the reality of how they're tempted to go back to the worthless things of the world. We also see when good pastors get bummed in verses 12 through 20, how the Galatians' old pastor, Paul himself, what he used to be known for and how they received him, but then seemingly their new pastors in verses 12 through 18, who now really have turned on Paul. They've kind of graduated, if you will. They've moved on to better things, somebody who's made much of them, but only so they'll make much of the new pastors, building up that identity And then in verses 19 to 20, we saw the true pastor's goal for his people, Christ to be fully formed in them. But then we took another lap around the track, as I said. We chewed more meat that was left on the bones. We wanted to see back in the text some of the things that we maybe skipped over. Why? Because in the middle of the text and its purpose, there's still much to learn from it. And so also last week, we saw in verses 8 and 9, the profound reality of the doctrine of conversion, the teaching of conversion, what God does in saving sinners. Now, sweet and remarkable it is. But that now takes us to the second lesson to learn topical in this text, which is the challenges of pastoral ministry. The challenges of pastoral ministry. So putting us all back on the same page, follow along with me in Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. Paul, continuing to write here, says to them, Formerly, When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, Become as I am, for I have also become as you are. You did me no wrong. You knew it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. 
I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Friends, as we take a look at this text again and we see some of the challenges of pastoral ministry, I want to kind of draw our attention back to what we see in the end of verse 11 and the end of verse 20. End of verse 11, he says, I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. And in verse 20, he says, I'm perplexed about you. The significance here is to recognize that Paul is conflicted with the think about the Galatians. In fact, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 6, he says, and in previous chapters, he says, I am astonished. What's he astonished by? That you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So Paul has kind of various terminology he uses to reflect his reflection on them. He's astonished. He's wondering, and if he's doing this in vain, he is perplexed. He's basically saying he's at his wit's end. He does not know what to do. He's taught all that he knows to teach. He said all the things that should be said, and yet they're still not listening. They were listening for a time. They were so close to relationship, and yet they seemingly have begun to wander now. This all happening seemingly behind his back while he was away. What Paul's wrestling with here is the reality that not everything that presents itself as Christian by name or by identity is necessarily that. Not sure what to think of it. He believes them to be. He speaks to them accordingly, but he wonders if it all really is in vain. And it would be worth, if I could ask you, keeping your finger in the book of Galatians, turn with me back to the book of Matthew. I say back as if you're new to the Bible. It's to the left of where you would be if you have a Bible in your hands. And if you don't, we have them for free for you in the lobby. You can feel free to go in the Welcome Center and they'll give one to you. But Matthew 13, I want you to hear what Jesus says. He teaches a parable, a story that actually is very helpful to us. Even understanding the Galatians of years ago and even us today here in Miami at Grace Church. Matthew 13, track with me here the first nine verses. Verse one. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat, behind, sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables. And here comes an example of one. Saying, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured them, and other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. Since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, for the sake of time, we won't go there, but later in the verse 18 and following, he explains what this parable means. Let me just give you the summary of it. Jesus is saying, listen, a farmer is throwing out seed to plant it. The seed is landing, presumably in a place that it would grow. Otherwise, he wouldn't plant it in that area. He wouldn't toss it in that area. But what initially appears to be more growth than otherwise actually is, is actually over time shown itself to be actually real versus false. 
He's talking about the people who seemingly respond to truth, the truth of God's word, the good news of his son, and seemingly look like initially, man, this is exciting. And yet over time, when circumstances come, when temptation from the evil one comes, it actually sort of exposes, it's not actually planted in good soil. They don't actually really believe. By understanding today, by comparison, there are a lot of people who have misunderstandably been told or have believed that they are Christians when they're really not. And sometimes it's because they have been deceived to think that because they've done things like prayed a prayer or gone to church or read a Bible or done something seemingly moral, and that's what good Christians do, so therefore you must be a Christian. And they've been self-deceived, or they've either been deceived by others to think that that makes them a Christian, or they have been self-deceived themselves to think, well, I have had this religious experience. I have had this emotional moment. I have had this profoundly personal time for me, and I just know it, and I felt it. And yet, as time and truth go hand in hand, as that confession is tested to see when the sun rises, when the elements come, do they really actually understand and believe? Or is it not actually true? Now, it's not that Christians can lose their salvation. A text that we'll get to in a couple of weeks where we talk about, can Christians lose their salvation? Later on, it comes up in Galatians 4. And spoiler alert, they cannot question is, do they actually ever truly believe? Well, that's the context of Galatians. Paul is like saying, I, I see you, I know you, but I'm watching you over time, and I'm, I'm wondering, did I labor in vain? I'm perplexed. I, I'm scratching my head, sort of looking at you, and sort of wondering, what am, I, what am I really seeing with you? And this is the plight of many pastors and shepherding people. Paul speaks of this reality in different ways at different times. The Galatians' thinking, as they're being retaught by false teachers, and their subsequent decisions and actions, is really illustrating this reality. And here's a reality I think you should just remember. It's going to be profound for you. See if you can track with me as I explain this to you. Sin makes you stupid. See, it's actually not that profound. It's quite simple. But the reality is, Sin, for the Galatians, has made them profoundly stupid. Now, some children in the room are like, did he just say the S word? Well, I just want to say there's a few times in the Bible it's used, so parents can talk about that in Proverbs. But to recognize the Galatians are thinking so wrongly and subsequently deciding and acting so inappropriately that Paul is wondering, what am I really looking at with you? What am I really looking at? This is why he's saying in verse 11 that he labor in vain. As one church father, Christensen said, the wreck has not yet happened, but I see that the big storm is coming. You can see what's about to happen. Let's sort of look at this term in vain. Look earlier in chapter two of Galatians. This is not the first time he's talked about this. He's talking about application to others. In verse 21 of chapter 2, kind of undermining the gospel, he says, Do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Chapter 3, verse 4, he talks about a similar type of idea here. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? He's sort of appealing to the reality of logical deduction. He's like, just stop and think with me here for a moment. 
Which is why I say sin makes you stupid because oftentimes we do things that are so irrational. We know this. I know this. You know this. Why do you keep going back to something that has caused you such great harm and headache before? Because you feel this magnetic drawn to the things that you know you should not do while you do not do the things you should do. And that's exactly what Paul is saying himself in Romans 7. Sort of inner fight, the sort of inner civil war. But Paul brings his pastoral weight to the matter. Even with another church in Philippians, he says in chapter 2, verse 16, holding fast to the word of life, so in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. Paul's basically saying it's, it's like this. It's like somebody who was a slave. No freedom, no privilege, no opportunity. You are a slave to a cruel master with no hope of escape of your own. You were not alone in that. Many other slaves alongside of you. You saw others set free, but you could never imagine that they would ever come for you. And then shockingly, surprisingly, another has come for you and purchased you and declared you as mine and that you are now free. You're no longer under that master. You're no longer in those chains. You no longer have to live that way of life. You're no longer under that cruel, over-lordship-bearing leader that you were under the autocrat. You are now free. How liberating that would be. How confusing or maddening it would be to have that person who purchased that slave to be now free, to watch that slave now walk over to another area and to another master and say, I'm here to be your slave. Who would do such a thing? Who would think such ways? Well, you'd think nobody would do that. That would be ridiculous. Paul's saying that's exactly what the Galatians are doing. And that's exactly what we often attempt to do as Christians. To go back to the things that we've been set free from. Though they might be different things we did before Christ, nevertheless, to walk away and wander away from the gospel. Paul knows this all too well throughout his ministry. As he writes to the Corinthians, as he writes to the Galatians, as he writes to the Ephesians, as he writes to so many of these churches, even sort of encouraging them and commending them and exhorting them to, to go back to the gospel. Looking at this text, you can see the heart of a pastor for his people. It's not unique to Paul. It's common to any one of them. Any one of them, I mean to say, who are called by the Lord to serve accordingly. I'm reminded in 1 Timothy chapter 3 as Paul teaches one of his disciples, Timothy, who is himself a pastor of churches that Paul had planted himself, who is raising up other pastors. Paul in the book of 1 Timothy is sending Timothy back to a church that Paul planted in Ephesus to basically have to reset it. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he establishes the qualifications of an elder. Because he has to reset what has wandered away. And it does the same thing in the book of Titus with new churches, new Christians on the island of Crete that Titus might put into order what has remained of all these new Christians who were not in churches at that point. And the significance of this, even as Paul says in the very end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, he tells Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who would be able to teach others also. 
One of the things that I think is so remarkable at Grace Church, amongst many, including how friendly you guys are and loving and just a display of sacrifice and kindness as the members of Grace Church here are, is the men that God has uniquely given to Grace Church. I think about Pastor Ronald Perez, Pastor Chris Chuday. The reality is, if you come from a church background in particularly the city of Miami, you maybe are used to seeing sort of single CEO personalities that kind of run the church. And if it's not him, then it's the her to the him, the wife. It's kind of take or leave it, it's what it's like. But we believe at Grace Church that God has ordained that all churches, big or small, are to be led by a plurality of godly men who are not overbearing and not lording themselves over, but by their capacity to teach the word and to refute false doctrine that contradicts the word, by the example of their life, by their proven testimony how they manage their own households and care for their own wives and their own children as a kind of a taste case study of how they would care for other people that belong to the household of God, and who are patient and kind and dignified, that those men collectively together would shepherd a people. And that's true in Nigeria as it's true here in Miami. That's true in Nepal as it is in India. Faithful local churches. They might not meet in nice, ornate buildings like this. They might meet in small village house churches. But the point is God has given elders to lead churches. And at Grace Church, you have such examples clearly before you with such men that you have at this church. And it's not often the opportunity I get to actually address them before the rest of you. But this morning, from this text, I want to do so. But I do not want you to make this mistake. I do not want you to make the mistake to think because I address them, I'm not by implication addressing you. Because as Paul says so much to the Galatians, you can imagine, as he says in the very beginning of Galatians chapter one, as he greets them, he says, and all the other brothers who are with us, Paul is as much teaching those who are with him as he is those to whom he is writing. In the same way in which I speak to Chris and to Ronald and any other man here who God will raise up one day to be an elder at this church, be it on staff as a pastor or as a volunteer, as a lay elder in a church, as Pastor Ronald is as a model example, or at Faith Church or at other church we plant in the future, or if God moves you across the country or across the world to be an elder in some other church, that you would think biblically about what does pastoral ministry look like. So with that in mind, let me share with you these seven challenges for pastors and elders that I think are important, and not only for men like Chris or Ronald or even myself to remember, as we see throughout the scripture, but also for us entirely as a congregation. Number one, don't confuse God's work in people's lives with your work in people's lives. I say this to Ronald, I say this to Chris, I say this to any other man who one day will aspire to be a pastor. The reality is this, God often desires and designs the leaders that he raises up in his churches to be examples to the flock. This is exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, to, be, to the elders, he says, to be examples to the flock of what to believe and what to do. But 
it's also often God's design to use a lot more people and providences in his people's lives than just their pastors to sanctify them and mature them. And this is significant because it also realizes then that as pastors an adjustment of aspirational timelines for people's walk with the Lord. The temptation for pastors such as myself or Ronald or Chris is to think with such a person, I've covered this before. We've talked about this before. We've studied this before. <laughs> How many times do I have to cover this? Yes, you have. But God often chooses to use other means and other people than just you. And the timeline of sanctification is not as accelerated as we otherwise wish it would be. This is why so often it's described that the elder, the pastor, must not be quarrelsome. He must be patient. He must be dignified. Because otherwise he'll lose his mind. Second, be careful to not create a culture where people clean up to impress you. This is important for pastors and elders to realize. What do I mean by this? People are tempted to please their pastor and be accepted by them, but then over time become dishonest as to what's really going on in their life. It's almost like they treat their pastors as priests and somehow think they can impress God by impressing their pastors. But this is dishonest and has tremendously adverse effects over time. So the idea of transparency and humility, the idea of honesty is valued not only between Christians with one another, but also between Christians and their pastors. This also creates an effect where if people only see people who are cleaned up and seemingly put together well, like seemingly on your Sunday best, then it misleads others in this room to think, oh, I'm a broken person, I've got problems, I probably don't fit in here. Let me just say on behalf of this entire room, if you feel like your life is a hot mess or have experienced some hot mess problems, you're right at home. Welcome to the family. That does not mean that we sort of greet each other with our hot mess stories. And it doesn't mean that we don't have this level of discretion with our different details of our lives. And closer friendships versus further away acquaintances on the amount of information we know. But I can just say with full confidence to communicate to the rest of you that if you maybe think we're all doing okay and if you're struggling, I'm not sure what your problem is. Friends, that's not true at all. And the reason it's important for pastors to know and to recognize this is because to recognize that we want to make sure that we do not create a culture where people have to behave well, to be accepted well, look well, dress well, talk well, speak well. As long as you put on the veneer of doing well, then you're well. This only kind of creates white tomb discipleship, whitewashed Pharisees. Clean on the outside, but corrupt on the inside. This is why pastors have to be careful to create an environment where that kind of transparency is opportunity for ministry. Third, for pastors and elders and challenges to face, remember that Christian sanctification is a lifelong process. Look at Galatians and what he's saying here. He recognizes the reality of what's going to take place. It is over the span of many, many years. He does not know. The jury is still out. There are different seasons of fruitfulness and barrenness in many people's lives. Do not be discouraged if you're a pastor. Aspire to be. If that's not something true of you now, gentlemen, to say this to the reality, God will complete what he began. 
Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. It's tempting to bypass the true sanctification and go to moral reform. It might appear to be the same, but they're really not. The reality is God cares about a person's heart. And doing heart work is hard work that takes a lot of work over a long time. For men like Ronald and Pastor Chris, this is an important reality. Number number four, don't be surprised by the pain of pastoral ministry. Don't be surprised by the pain of pastoral ministry. So one of the things that Ronald or Chris and I do at Grace Church is we have the privilege to marry young couples And before we marry them, we have the privilege and responsibility to prepare them for marriage by doing premarital counseling. And the reality in premarital counseling is kind of like a wake-up call. Because you've got this young couple, not necessarily young, they could be older, but you've got this couple, and they've kind of entered in this relationship like, I've gotten to know them, I've had other people speak into this, I've prayed about it, I've sought counsel, on and on and on, and we've come to the decision, we want to get married together. They still often go into marriage with a bit of a rose-colored glasses perspective. And the reality is, is that they do not know what's coming for them. I remember having a conversation with a couple many years ago in California that I married. We're talking about the dynamic of roles and relationships in marriage and the relationship of a husband to a wife and a wife to a husband. And she looked at him like, oh my goodness, he could do no wrong. This lesson does not apply to me. I mean, do you not know who I'm married? I mean, it's like the 13th apostle. This guy's amazing. And then I just looked at her like she has no clue what's coming. And we like to meet with couples after they get married because that's when we feel like they're listening now. And she came back in with her husband, sat in her living room and said, wow, things are a lot harder than I realized. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, I couldn't even handle the placement of the TV without getting in a fight. Just placing the TV was a fight for us. We weren't even the week one of our marriage and we're going at it over a TV. I was like, welcome to marriage. <laughs> I say this. A lot of people go into pastoral ministry thinking, man, how cool would it be? You spend like all day just reading the Bible. And everybody else just thinks, what do pastors do all day? I mean, they pretty much just get up here and give like a little monologue off the top of their head. And then they spend the rest of their time all throughout the week doing who knows what, maybe golfing or something. I'd like to be a pastor. And then young men would be like, man, that'd just be super cool. And then you become a pastor. You're like, what have I just signed up for? I did not realize that sheep bite and they wander. And even when you bring them back, they wander again. And you're like, is it me or is it them? I don't know what's happening here. I'm like, welcome to being a pastor. This is why it's important when Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that he who aspires to the office of the elder aspires a noble work. It's going to be a work. You can even get a feel for this in verse 19 of Galatians chapter 4. Look what Paul says in Galatians and how he describes the reality of it. He says, verse 19, he switches from the title in verse 12 of brothers to now verse 19, my little children. He's talking to Galatians. My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. What's worth highlighting here? The change of relationship term he uses And again, he's come back to the reality. Pastoral ministry is never just one and done. And for those of you who are being pastored, as you all are as Christians, that pastor desires not for you just to know Christ as a point of salvation, and I can move on, but to know Christ as a point of continued maturation. 
that you would grow into a Christ that's fully formed in you, into the likeness of Christ. And this is hard. It takes a long work. And only by the Spirit of God, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. Number five, pastor, patiently and gently while never compromising conviction. Pastor, patiently and gently while never compromising conviction. Here's a temptation as a pastor. You should know this at the outset. The more things I say to you that you like, the more you'll come back. And hopefully, the more you'll tell other people, come back with you. And then hopefully, this church gets bigger. You guys are here more. You guys give more. We get a better, better public reputation. People talk about Grace Church, and it's great, in so much as my reputation is great. And so over time, a pastor begins to say, what do the people want to hear? Well, that's what I want to tell them to hear. That's a pastor who has no conviction. He doesn't teach the word of God. Preach the word is what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. In season and out of season. Why? He goes, because the time will come in verses 3 and 4 where people will surround themselves with teachers who will tickle their ears. Tell them what they want to hear. But for us who are in pastoral ministry, here's the flip side to that. To speak the truth but without love. To give them all the conviction but without any of the demonstration of compassion. That's a spiritual parent who's right in principle, but wrong in practice. Because pastoring is a work that takes great patience, great endurance, great gentleness. Turn to the right in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look how Paul describes his ministry to this church. Look at verse 7 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Verse nine. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul, as his nursing mother, this instructing father, we should pastor patiently and with gentleness. Number six, pastors should never neglect to remind themselves of the gospel. To Chris and to Ronald, to anybody else who aspires to be a pastor one day as men in the church that God's raising up, never neglect to remind yourself of the gospel. God loves you not because of what you do, how well you do it, or how good you are at doing it. He loves you because of his son being slain for you who is a substitute for you. Your identity is not in your church or your people's reputation of you. That will change with the wind. And if you are a slave to that, then it becomes your slave master, your reputation. 
Pastor Tim Keller helpfully said one time, if anything but Jesus is a requirement for being happy or worthy, that thing will become our slave master. Friends, that's true, no matter whether you're a pastor or not. Think of that for yourself right now as a Christian. Is there anything in my life, is there anyone in my life that my happiness, my worth is tied to that's not Jesus? Friend, you've just met your slave master. Come back to Jesus. Seven and final, don't neglect to rest. Don't neglect to rest. Here's the reality. Pastoral work is never done. It's never, never done. And conscientious men who are called to it are often burdened because of what they desire. Listen to Paul when he says, in the pains of childbirth, I am in anguish until Christ is fully formed in you. How do you measure maturity of a Christian? Attendance? Bible reading? Prayer life? How frequently they evangelize? Friends, so much more than that. One of my big concerns for Pastor Ronald and Pastor Chris is that these men rest well. I think a recent example, just this week, our dearly beloved brother, Dylan, whose mom suddenly more than, fast, more than ever expected passed away. While the rest of us were here, hearing the news, Pastor Chris was driving immediately over there to be with Dylan. And as walked by that young man's side with his new bride for the last couple of days, day in and day out, morning and night, everything from I gotta figure out what to do with animals, do I need to plan for a funeral, do I need to minister to other people who are grieving and questioning, do I need to help him think through the gospel, do I need to comfort him in his grief, all while being away from his wife and children. And that work will never end. This is why it's so important that pastors themselves even remember Hebrews chapter 4 about how Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has rested from his works as God did from his. What's the relationship here? Turn with me, finally, in Hebrews chapter 13, all of you, please. You're like, where's Hebrews? You go to the right from Galatians. If you get to 1 Peter or 1 John or Jude Revelation, you've gone too far. Hebrews chapter 13, the writer, we don't even know who it is, writing to a bunch of new Christians, Jewish Christians, who are being tempted to turn back to Judaism. He makes two statements in chapter 13. I think it's worth all of you considering this morning in a spirit of humility as you hear the word of God read to you and exhorted to you. And the relationship of biblical leaders and biblical followers and the dynamic of what that looks like together. Hebrews chapter 13, verse seven says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The Galatians lost sight of the apostle that God gave them, of the pastor that God entrusted to them, of the biblically qualified, biblically faithful teacher that they had heard. And they started to wander into novelty. And Paul says, what happened? Hebrews are being commended 
Consider the leaders, what they said and how they lived. Look at that. Who spoke to you the word of God and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. But then jump ahead, 10 more verses, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's right, pastors have to give an account to God for their people. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning as those who have to give an account. Excuse me, for that would be of no, let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. So here's a question if you're a member of Grace Church and to those of you who are not members of Grace Church, you're listening in on a family conversation, pray about joining the family. But listen to me if you're a member of Grace Church. How much are you a joy and delight to pastor? Not because you're trying to please men, but because, as it says, you're trying to walk in a manner worthy of God. Your pastor's greatest delight is not what you think of them, but is Christ being fully formed in you? Are you submitted to that process? Does Christ as your Savior and Lord resonate with you and that you delight in it? And you love to be taught, to be prayed for, to be at times necessarily corrected and redirected? Do you welcome that? Or do you kick against that? Hebrews has a word for all of us as Christians in that regards. So is parenting hard? Yes, but it's also got lots of pleasure. Lots of memories. Is pastoring hard? Yes, but it's also got tremendous opportunity to see Christ be honored and glorified from people being moved from darkness to light. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. God draw you nearer to him through his word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.